Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A lot of commentators were torn about how to divide the passage up. Uh, I think we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 this evening. Um, So I'll read verses 1 through 14 for us. What is good for man in this world? So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful that as our Lord and as our King, but also as our teacher, you know what is best for your people. And so often, oh God, we think we know better than you. We think joy and laughter and goodness is best for us. But oh God, sometimes it is better to be in times of sorrow. Sometimes it is better to consider the day of death. For these things cause us to stop and ponder and consider the brevity of life. They cause us to stop and ponder and consider and look to you. And we're thankful, O God, that in this world, for us, uh, your purpose is to sanctify us. Even if that is through heaviness, even if that is through much burden, O God, may we see that what man means for evil, you truly mean for good. And may we take to heart the truth, O God, that discipline seems painful for the moment, but it produces good things in your people. And so may we see this tonight, O God, as we consider what is good, as we consider the good life in all the vain life in which we live in this world, May we recognize as well that it is you who, God, we can put our faith and trust in and find our comfort in. As we wrestle with inconsistencies, as we wrestle with enigmas, may we trust you. We pray, O God, also that you would be pleased to save sinners, you'd be pleased to strengthen your saints, and we do pray, O God, in all things you would be glorified, and we ask, O God, you'd be glorified now as you help us better understand what your word says. Please teach us, please strengthen us, please encourage us, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, certainly you've probably heard the idea in our modern times about what the good life actually is. And most people equate the good life with things that feel good. But if it makes you happy, it truly can't be that bad. 
But in reality, that's not what is good for the people of God. In reality, that's not is what best for God's people in this world. While those good things that are not sinful in and of themselves can be used rightly and be used properly, the reality is in and of themselves, they bring emptiness and they bring unsatisfaction. And the preacher has shown the tension throughout this book. There's good things God gives, but there's enigmas. There's vanity. Pursuing those things for the sake of pursuing those things does not give meaning in this world. And the reality is the things that are good for us are not always the things that we enjoy. Perhaps the best things for us are the times that we go through adversity, the times that we go through pain, the times that we go through suffering, because it causes us to stop and consider who our God is. It causes us to stop and ponder and be drawn to our God once again. Perhaps we could use the New Testament language of discipline is painful in the moment. And certainly this is what Solomon wrestles with as he really answers the question that we see in 6.12. For who knows what is good for man in life? All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. He's going to answer that question. What is good for man in this world? And it will be something that is mysterious, will be something that is an enigma, will be something that one perhaps does not consider, one would not consider is what is good for us in this life. And remember, that's the whole point of the book, wrestling with inconsistencies, wrestling with the problems of this world, wrestling with the fallen world in which we do live in. So after he considers riches, the goodness of it, but also the sorrow that it brings as well, he comes and gives us some better than proverbs, gives us better than uh, good things that we see here. What is good for man in this world? And perhaps we do see proverbs and Ecclesiastes intention once again, because one problem that riches brings or two problems is forgetfulness and frivolity. That is when we are happy, when we are laughing, when we are joyful, it's easy for us to forget God. It's easy for us to forget the good, uh, to forget the good things that He has done. It's easy to perhaps puff ourselves up and forget the important things of this world. And then we only focus in on the things that do not last, that frivolous things that do not last. And so that is the conclusion of the problem. Sometimes sadness is better than rejoicing, but that's hard for us. That's a struggle for us. That's a struggle for the preacher. That's a struggle for Solomon. That's a struggle for everyone. But nonetheless, it remains to be true as it is what he concludes as he seeks to find out what wisdom is in this vain life. So in verses 1 through 14, the preacher answers the question about what is good for man, which includes sorrow and death. And so we'll look at what is good for man under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see how good sorrow is, verses 1 through 6. Secondly, we'll see how good the end is, verses 7 through 12. Then lastly, we'll see how good God is in verses 13 through 14. So how good sorrow is, verses 1 through 6. How good the end is, verses 7 through 12. And then lastly, how good God is in verses 13 and 14. So let's first look at how good sorrow is in verses 1 through 6. Again, it's in the context of riches. There is riches that simply in the pursuit in and of itself is unsatisfactory. It is a severe evil. It just only brings sorrow. But God does say in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, that God not only gives good temporal blessings, 
but God must give the gift to enjoy those temporal blessings as well. And then in chapter six, he highlights the evil that it is if God gives good things to someone, but does not give them the gift to rightly enjoy it. And so that's what he wrestles with when he comes to these answers to that question. And so what is better for a man than riches? Well, a good name is better than ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. In the pursuit of wealth, it is better to keep one's good name rather than squander it with the pursuit of riches. It's better to have a good reputation rather than to be a sleazebag who finds his riches in such a unsatisfactory, unsavory type of way. It's better to have a good reputation than precious ointment. And precious ointment was considered a sign of great wealth. In fact, there was someone who brought a bad name upon himself, namely Hezekiah, with this precious ointment. Hezekiah was a good king. He's one of the few good kings, but he does something that is bad. And he, he is puffed up and prideful. And what he does is he allows the envoys of Babylon to come into the temple and see all the riches. Look, all the riches that are here. And one of those things was precious ointment. Now, eventually, God does say to him, what are you doing? Eventually, Babylon's going to come and plunder Jerusalem, which they eventually do in 586. But it was considered a sign of great wealth. This all this language, this proverb squares away with proverbs as well. In Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. So it is better to have a good name, better to have honor, better to have a good reputation than the pursuit of wealth itself. So that's one thing that is better for man than riches, a good name. But also notice what is good for man in this good, in the good, the good life for man in this world. Verse one as well. And the day of death, than the day of one's birth. We've already seen death come up often in the book of Ecclesiastes. We have often seen how it is that great leveler, the wise and the fool are going to die. You know, it is better in the language of uh, what the threat of oppression in Ecclesiastes 4. It is better to die rather than to go through the oppression one endures. In Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time to die a time to be born and a time to die. But what he's saying here, in light of all that he's pondered and considered, he says it's a good thing. And the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. And in similar vein, verse two, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. I think the purpose is one in the same here with this type of language. Typically, when someone is born, it's a day full of great joy, isn't it? And typically when that little person is born, you're not thinking, when is this little person going to die? You're thinking about the life ahead of them rather than the day they are going to pass. Same with birthday parties. When you go to a birthday party, you're not saying to the four-year-old, well, you're just one step closer to dying. You would never say such a thing at a four-year-old's birthday. Maybe at an elderly person's birthday, they might be thinking that. They might say it themselves. They might say, well, one step closer to eternity. But the, 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 the young person, the little person, you do not say that. There's much mirth, there's much joy, there's much happiness. And I'm not saying we can't have such happiness. But the day of death and the house of mourning causes one to stop and think. When one goes to a funeral, one stops and thinks. One ponders the brevity of life. 
One ponders and consider what shall happen. Uh, that person is dead. That person is no longer alive. That person is no longer moving. What will I be like when I pass? And where will I go when I pass away? So the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. And the reason is, verse 2, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. This is why I use Psalm 90 to start us off. God's eternity ought to teach us our frailty. Remember, God is eternal. He is outside of time. He is not bound by time, even though he created time and works in time, but he is not bound by it himself. We are. We are finite creatures. He is infinite, and we are finite. And his, his eternality should cause us to stop and ponder the brevity of life. We really don't have much time in this world, do we? We are like a vapor. We're here one day and we're gone tomorrow. That is the reality of this vain life in which we live under the sun. It comes and goes very, very quickly. And he says, the, the, the living do well to take it to heart. Have we forgotten this? Have we forgotten that we are going to pass? Have we forgotten that we are going to die? Have we forgotten that there is sadness and sorrow and death in this world? It happens so often. And it's before our faces every day. We forgot that very thing. And we ought to number our days, as Psalm 90 says. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is the end. There is an appointed telos to which we are going, and it is the end of all men. And the death does not discriminate. All go this way. All go to this place. There is an end for all men, and it is death. And the living do well to take it to heart. Because the pondering, the thinking, the contemplation of death ought to give us perspective, right? It ought to cause us to stop and ponder and consider our vain life in which we live under the sun. And he continues, what is better for man? Sorrow is better than laughter. And he gives the reason why. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. And the language of sorrow here is the language of vexation. We've seen his vexation already in 517 with respect to the one who pursues silver and gold vainly. He says all his days he eats in darkness and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. So there it's not good, but here it is used in a positive light. How is it that sorrow is better than laughter? Well, for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. This is where we see some tension with Proverbs 15, 13. In Proverbs 15, 13, it seems like the opposite is better for man. In Proverbs 15, 13, it says, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. But in Ecclesiastes, he's saying, for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. It's difficult but perhaps the idea is hardship is better for us because again, it causes us to stop and consider our end. And it causes us to stop and consider perhaps that the hardship might produce something that is better for us in the end. Perhaps the hardship we endure, the heaviness we endure is better for us than the mirth that we get to in 
joy. We can use the illustration of muscle growth. The only way that one grows muscle, the only way that one grows strength is by proper stimulus, by proper adaption. Not too hard, but not too easy. If it is way too easy, nobody is going to grow. That's why we need that pressure. And even in the Christian life, brethren, we need that pressure because it causes us to grow in the grace and knowledge and dependence upon our God. So perhaps Hebrew or uh, what we see here with by a sad countenance, the heart is made better is akin to what we see in Genesis 50. When man means for evil, God means for good. Or Hebrews 12, discipline never seems joyful in the moment. It's painful in the moment, but it produces good things in the heart of God's people. So we don't like discipline. We don't like sadness. We don't like sorrow, but it is better for us. And he goes on to say, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Remember, he wants us to stop and ponder and consider what is the wise way to live, what is right living according to God's word. And it is better to be in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Wisdom is found in mourning again, because we stop and ponder and consider and discern what is the way of life. And then in verses five and six, he continues his better than sayings. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise. Again, the, the hard things in life keep coming up, but they're better for us. It is better to hear a correction than to just let things slide. It is better to be corrected by God Almighty, better to be corrected by a close friend rather than to hear anything else. And certainly this squares with the Proverbs 13, 15, and 17. Uh, I won't turn there, but they're very much there. 13, 1, 15, 31, and 17, 10. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise. If someone's wise, someone's older, someone's smarter, someone's more discerning, it's good to hear those things. It's good to hear correction. But better the, the rebuke than for a man to hear the song of fools. I don't care if it's pleasant. I don't care if it's got a good jingle to it. It is better to hear rebuke, even if it cackles, even if it's a hard sound, even if it's difficult, it is still better for one to hear rebuke than to hear the song of the fools. And he gives an illustration for like the crackling of thorns under a pot. So is the laughter of the fool. Probably what he means here is thorns are never good for lighting a fire. You light it quickly and it's gone. Same with the laughter of the fools. There might be joy and happiness, and it might be great for a while, but the laughter of the fools is just like that. It goes away quickly. It does not last. This also is vanity. You'd expect laughter to be good for the soul. Laughter is the best medicine. Now, laughter and enjoyment are God's gifts, but what if you never hear rebuke and correction? Better. You know, the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. It's like raising children. It's good to have fun. It's good to play with them, but it's also good to correct them, isn't it? Don't prepare the road for your children, but prepare your children for the road, which requires discipline, which is hard. It's difficult, but it is better for them than just letting them do whatever they wish to do. This also is vanity. 
And I think one thing that God wants us to draw out here, other than the fact that sorrow is good for us, is the reason sorrow is good for us is because it awakens our attention. Perhaps you've gone through this in your own Christian life. Things are going pretty good. You grow a little forgetful of the things of God. Your prayer life begins to slip. Your Bible reading begins to slip. Then boom, something comes your way that you don't want, you don't expect. Something difficult, something hard. Maybe it's even your own battles with sin. What does that do? It drives you to pray. It drives you to God. It drives you to stop and consider. It drives you to depend upon him once again. Now, it would be good if we just depended on him all the time, right? Just thanked him for everything all the time, right? In the times of joy and the times of adversity. But that's sometimes not always how it works for us. We ought to do those things, but sometimes times of sorrow awaken us. Mirth and abundance still is a gift of God, but it can make us sleepy and forgetful. And so times of sorrow shake us out of our slumbers. This is what James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 and uh, two through 4. We are supposed to rejoice when we face trials of various kinds because of everything that the preacher has said in Ecclesiastes 7. James 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, My brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work. You may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives without reproach. But let patience have its perfect work. Testing of your faith that produces patience. We ought to rejoice in trials. I'm not saying you have to be super smiley all the time, but recognize that it is from God and it is a good thing for your Christian walk. Perhaps God is protecting us from something. Perhaps God is keeping us from something. But God is also perhaps giving it, bringing it to us to test us and work in us patience in him. We ought to pray that we all be sanctified by God. But we're not always going to like the way in which he does sanctify us. And let's be honest. I know there's a lot of joy and goodness in this world, and we need to be thankful to God for it. But there's a lot of sorrow. This is the present evil age, isn't it? There's still sin and remaining corruption in our own hearts. There's still a lot of the effects of sin we see in the world. And so isn't it comforting to know that, that, that sorrow is a good thing for us? Now, it's not the end. We'll get to that in just a second. But it is good. I think Matthew Henry was gold in this section. He says, sorrow is better than laughter, more agreeable to our present state where we are daily sinning and suffering ourselves, more or less, and daily seeing the sins and suffering of, sufferings of others. While we are in a veil of tears, we should conform to the temper of the climate. It is also more for our advantage, for by the sadness that appears in the countenance, the heart is often made better. Note, that it, that is best for us, which is best for our souls, by which the heart is made better, though it be unpleasing to sense. Sadness is often a means of seriousness, and that affliction which is impairing to the health, estate, and family may be improving to the mind, and makes such impressions upon that as may alter its temper very much for the better, may make it humble and meek, loose from the world, penitent for sin, and careful of duty. 
Isn't it better for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we have to endure physical suffering or relational suffering or whatever estate we might have to deal with? Isn't it better for us? I'm not saying we go looking for that. I'm not saying we're masochists, but God brings about these trials for specific reasons to perhaps wake us up just a little bit. So that's how good sorrow is. Let's then look secondly at how good the end is, verses 7 through 12. Thankfully, sorrow is not forever. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy certainly comes in the morning. And notice he frames how good the end is with verse 7. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. We've seen the problem of oppression in this world already, in chapter 4 and in chapter 6. And in chapter six, especially we see it, or sorry, chapter five, um, if you see the oppression of the the poor and the violent of perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel. When you see corruption in this world, do not marvel. When you see wicked tyrants engaging in corruption, do not marvel. We should be surprised by those very things. But we must recognize that we are prone to that ourselves. Notice. Uh, By oppression, he says, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and and a bribe debases the heart. We are all prone to wander. The best of men are men at best. Even the best men, the wisest men, can be broken by oppression and be tempted by bribes. The best can be tempted by these things. That's why we need to be watchful. That's why we need to be on guard. That's why we need to be careful. That's why we need to be humble. I don't have any specific examples in my mind. I'm sure if I comb through some historical books, I could find some. I remember reading a histor- a, a, a volumes on history recently and struck by how many times godly people under oppression caved. They crumbled. They were fearful. Why? Well, it says oppression destroys a wise man's reason now god forgives doesn't he i mean he forgives peter we just read that in john 21 god is merciful and kind and good i think sometimes we like to think that we would stand in those days right like i know i would stand for jesus someone held a gun to my really would you except by the mighty power of god by the strength of our king and our christ The only way we can stand and we hear of other people standing is because of the goodness of our God. And we need to be more humble than I think we like to think we are. Solomon is a realist here for us. Oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. So we shouldn't be surprised when there's oppression. We shouldn't be surprised when there is persecution. We shouldn't be surprised of the things we read in Voices of the Martyrs. But how do we live in light of that? That's where I think verses 8 through 10 help us. How do we respond to oppression? And how do we respond to threats of bribery? Verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. Oppression is going to end. One day it will stop. One day it will finish. One day it will be no more. And it will be better than the beginning. One day this present evil age will stop, brethren. Everything you see, all the injustice, all the inconsistencies, all the enigmas that we see will end. Christ will make his enemies his footstool and everything shall be made right. There is going to be an end. 
There's going to be an end of oppression. Hopefully God does it within our lifetime that we can enjoy other good things, but God will certainly do it at his coming. God will certainly do it when he returns, but there's going to be an end to it. So we need to take comfort in that. Secondly, this is hard. Both the next two are really hard. Patience is better than pride. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You know, one sign of pride is and arrogance, grumbling and complaining. Paul or Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter chapter 5, when he talks about how we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You know how we do that? By casting our cares and burdens upon him. What's the implication? When we grumble and complain, we think we would have a better life for ourselves than what God has given to us. We think we know better than God most high. We think God, we would have a better estate than what God has placed us in. We think we know better than God most high. That's what grumbling and complaining is. And we do it a lot. We don't like our circumstance. We don't like certain things and we ought not to do it. We need to recognize that God has placed us in various times and circumstances for a specific reason, even where there's oppression. Now, I'm not saying you can't flee. I'm not saying you can't plan. I'm not saying any of those things, but patience is better than pride. Also, boy, this is this one is that this one's the hardest. Verse nine, do not hasten your spirit to be angry. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. What's interesting is the same word for vexation. We saw how sorrow is good in verse 3, but here it is not. So again, sometimes words can have differing meanings. And here it refers to it in a negative way. Do not hasten your spirit to be angry. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. It rests in their hearts. They're rash they're quick to respond rather than being level-headed, stopping, considering, pondering, not being angry with where God has placed you, not being angry with what's going on, but submitting to what God, where God has placed us. How do we respond to oppression? Is there is going to be an end, patience, and avoiding anger, which is very hard. And the last thing, and we all are prone to golden age syndrome. Do not say, so he's implying what, how people, what people are saying to him here. This is the response of a lot of people. You do it, I do it. Why were the former days better than these? We always think life would be better, right? If we had lived in this time, life would be really good if we lived in this era. Would that be just wonderful? Life was really good at this moment in my life. Whining, grumbling, complaining. It wouldn't be great to have lived in the Puritan era. Yeah, it'd be awesome. Sure, John Owen's there, John Bunyan, Thomas Goodwin, William Whitaker, so many different men that you can be, you know, sit under. But hygiene, you love your baths every day. You love to be able to go to a toilet with running water. You love all of those things. I don't think you'd like living in the Puritan era as much as you think you might like to live in. Now, if you lived in the Puritan era, you have no idea about modern means, but I'm saying you who think about living in that era, right? We all think it would be better. We think, oh, no, today is the worst thing I've ever experienced. Nobody has ever experienced what I'm experiencing now. Do not say why were the former days better than these i mean he says this in ecclesiastes one 
is there anything, or it's verse 9 of chapter 1, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. I love verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Basically, history repeats itself. I'm not saying there aren't manifestations or the unique things we deal with in a certain way. We deal with things in a unique way. doesn't mean those problems weren't present in other times. We live in a fallen, present, evil age. And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't be surprised. Do not inquire. For you do not inquire wisely concerning this very thing, do you? thinking about the past, thinking about the golden age, even thinking about the future. Such things are too wonderful for us, are they not? That's what David says in Psalm 131, Lord, surely my heart is not haughty, surely nor my eyes too lofty, nor do I concern myself with great matters, nor things that are too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child, is my heart, is my soul within me, like a weaned, or so a, a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. You know what that's in the context of? Determining the future and considering the past. God has placed us in a time and place for various reasons. We ought not to inquire into the future nor worry so much about a golden age in the past. What's he saying? Be thankful Trust in his providence, trust in his promises. He even says this in 3.12 as well. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. And even beforehand, he says, God does it. Nothing can be taken away from God's plan that men should fear before him. So comforting things in times of oppression, how we ought to live. And then verses 11 and 12, it's still better to have wisdom. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, or perhaps wisdom helps us understand the importance of an inheritance. I don't necessarily know here. But in any case, inheritance isn't necessarily bad, but it should be used with wisdom. But even then, it is only for a time. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and is profitable to those who see the sun, that is, those in life. That is, we only have so much time that even wisdom can offer us. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. For wisdom, right use of God's law, right discernment of what the scriptures say. Wisdom is a defense. Yeah, is a defense as money is a defense. The excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. So wisdom is still good. Wisdom is still better. But nonetheless, it is only for a time. And one way in which God cultivates wisdom is by sorrow. How God cultivates, how sorrow cultivates wisdom in us. Again, oppression, pain, and sorrow is never something we pursue, but it is how God cultivates wisdom in his people. Again, as he says in three, to teach us to fear and consider the ways of life to consider how we ought to live and again usually in times of sorrow and sadness we're thinking about those things more bridges is good here he says 
This is not therefore the sentiment of a sour misanthrope. I had to look that up. A sour loner, one who is grumbling and whining and complaining. It is that of one who looks beyond the momentary ebullition, another fun word to look up, but the gushings of the sorrow. Sometimes moments of sorrow, we're just gushing with concern, right? We're just crying out with tears. So the momentary ebullition of the sorrow to the after abounding and largely compensating results. That is, there's a good in it. What if there be a need be for the present heaviness? Sorrow cultivates wisdom in God's people. So that's how good the end is. Let's then look thoroughly and finally at how good God is, verses 13 and 14. There are crooked paths in this world. Verse 13, consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked. Remember in chapter 1, how he was vexed in his pursuit of wisdom, and how when he sought wisdom, it only brought grief, because the more he understood, the more he wrestled with the world, the more he understood sin. It only brings grief, doesn't it? <laughs> As we learn more about the things of God and the things of this world and the things of sin, there's joy and goodness and happiness, and it's great, but also we learn more of sin. And as we grow in sanctification, we see more of our sin. And as we learn more about sin and theology, we see more of sin in this world, and it, we see more of the crooked ways that fall in this life, in this vain life in which we live. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. Well, he kind of answers that. Who made it crooked? Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Has God not ordained the crooked paths? That's hard, isn't it? Much like we saw this morning with Acts chapter 2. God ordained that Jesus would be delivered, but you killed him. God worked through those wicked men. We must understand the, uh, the importance of secondary causes. Man is not the, uh, God is not the author of sin, but God ordained it and decreed it. That's hard. And God decreed the crooked paths that are in this world that you and I sometimes have to endure in this place. Has God not ordained them? Are there not times to weep and times to laugh? Times to mourn and times to dance, as we saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Has he not ordained all of these things? Henry says, who can change the nature of things from what is settled by the God of nature? If he speak trouble, who can make peace? And if he hedge up the way with thorns, who can get forward? If desolating judgments go forth with commission, who can put a stop to them? Since therefore we cannot men's God, men, God's work, we ought to make the best of it. Just deal. God knows best. God knows what is right. God, we must make the best of where God has placed us. And recognize that he's appointed both good days and bad days. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. God gives good things. He gives the times of abundance. Even in Ecclesiastes 3 and in Ecclesiastes 5, he gives good things. Ecclesiastes 2, we can enjoy the good of our labor. And we ought to be joyful in that, to praise him, to thank him for those good things that he gives to us. Mirth isn't always bad. We must have a proper theological perspective. It is a gift of God. 
and to rightly enjoy it and use it. But also remember, in the day of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed the one as well as the other. God appoints hard days for his people. God appoints hard days in this world. Now, we know the theological overarching reason why he does so, but maybe in the moment, we do not know why. Just like Joseph waited a long time before he had it explained why he had to go into slavery for, what, 12 years? Why he was, you know, away sold into slavery, why he was forgotten. It was to save the people of Israel. But he didn't know that for 12 years. But we, he still had the theological perspective. And we still need to have that theological perspective that what man means for evil, God truly does mean for good and for the good of his people. And usually the point of these appointed days, one as well as the other, is to teach us to fear God, to trust in him, to look to him, to recognize our need for him, for he is the creator, the sustainer, the providential guider, as he says in 14, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Again, we all like to know the future and pry into what's going to happen in our life, what's going to occur. I don't know. We don't really know, do we? Do we really know? Matthew 6, you know, the words of our Lord. Don't worry about tomorrow, for today has its problems, right? Again, I'm not saying you can't plan. I'm not saying you can't save for retirement. I'm not saying you can't have all those things. But remember, God gives days of joy and days of adversity. Tomorrow might be a day of joy or a day of adversity. Both come from God Most High. And I think all of this, again, is to teach us how insignificant we are. We have a problem with self-significant syndrome, right? We think we're better than everybody. We think the world revolves around us. This is what Ecclesiastes teaches us. We, ha we don't know the beginning from the end. Trust in God. That's the emphasis. That's the thrust. That's the focus. We do not know the future. And the focus ought to be something that is comforting for us. How comforting God's providence really is. It gives us comfort for us in a fallen world where there is sorrow and sadness. God has ordained it for a reason. God has ordained prosperity and adversity. It gives us perspective in this world. But as well, we also know that there will be an end. Death or the end of the world, there will be an end to this vain life that we live, right? For God's people, and really this life that we live isn't so vain because it's in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We are redeemed and saved in him, but we shall have everlasting life because of what Jesus has done. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the heaviness that you endure in this world shall end. Paul says it's a momentary light affliction that we endure in this present evil age. So that ought to be a comfort for us. Death is coming. Christ is coming. And that ought to be a comfort for the people of God. Perhaps to put a more positive spin on it, let's use the word hope. The New Testament speaks of the hope that we have in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll close just by reading 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, who kind of brings all these things together nicely for us. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, 
talks about inheritance, talks about trials, talks about faith, talks about its purpose. Even as he calls them the elect exiles in the lands. First Peter one verses three through nine, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Christ is raised, we have hope. And Christ also has purchased for us to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept. Even as exiles in the land, we are kept as he guides us till the end by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, it's a little momentary light affliction. It's a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The genuineness of your faith, whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brethren, we have a living hope in a living Savior through the resurrection from the dead who has purchased for us an inheritance is unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places. And even though it is for a little while, we have this hope in him. So what's there to worry about? Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your words uh, and your wisdom that you reveal to us in Ecclesiastes. We pray, O oh God, that you would teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to recognize that better is a good name than precious ointment, and better is the day of death than the day of birth. We pray, O oh God, that we would be wise people that recognizes what your word says, have, has a theological perspective of everything that comes to pass, that we think biblically. And we're thankful, O oh God, that you do give us wisdom as we walk this world, as we are pilgrims in the land. We're thankful, O God, that we do not do so without hope. We're thankful that we have hope in Christ. We have hope in the new heavens and new earth. We're thankful that there's going to be an end to this world. There's going to be an end to our pain and sorrow and suffering. And we're thankful, O God, it is according to your appointed time. So help us to submit to your purposes. Help us to submit to what you've ordained for our lives, both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. May we submit to those things without grumbling and complaining. May we submit to you without, uh, without anger. May we not inquire of the past or the future, but recognize that you are God and you know what is best. So help us by your spirit to put our faith and trust in you, especially as we go out into the world, as we are vexed and perplexed by things that are happening, as we endure various things that we struggle with. Thank you that you are God and we can put our faith and trust in you. And thank you, O oh God, that you know what is best for us. These things are easy for us to confess now, easy for us to confess when things are going well. But would you help us in the times of darkness to cling to you? Help us in the times of heaviness to look to Christ. And may you help us 
to do what is right, regardless of the circumstances we are in. Help us to do this by your spirit, we pray. We also pray that you be honored and glorified as you move all things to their end and for your purpose. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.